Hey there, I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor for Bloomberg Government. And I'm Greg Giroux, senior elections reporter for Bloomberg Government. Check out our podcast, Down Ballot Counts. Each week, Greg and I will be breaking down all of those down ballot elections that make up the fight for the U.S. Congress. Listen and subscribe to Down Ballot Counts from Bloomberg Government wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. What a week for Supreme Court news, huh, Jordan? Uh, The Senate started and completed its four-day confirmation hearings for Amy Coney Barrett. The Supreme Court itself heard four cases. It also added new cases to its docket, and it issued an order in a contentious census case. Say that three times quickly. Um, So, Jordan, let's get to it. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about the consolidated cases that the court granted a review in this week? Sure. On Tuesday, the court granted cert in a group of cases called Arthrex, dealing with the constitutionality of administrative judges who review patents. So that's a big deal in the IP world, and I'm sure we'll be talking more about that case before it's argued later in the term. And that's all I have to say about that for now, (laughs) because we have a whole lot of other stuff to talk about. But for those who find that interesting, don't worry, we will be dealing with that again in the future. So you mentioned this census case. What's happening there? Right. So in that case, the Supreme Court granted the Trump administration's request to stop the census counting. A lower court had ordered the administration to continue field operations of trying to count households that have yet to answer the census, citing concerns that otherwise it would not be accurate. Uh, As a reminder, the census is used not only to apportion representatives, uh, but also to distribute billions of dollars in federal funds. But in Ross versus National Urban League, the Supreme Court allowed the administration to stop counting and to turn to tabulating the numbers. And the administration says it needed to stop counting in order to meet the December 31st statutory deadline for turning the results over to the president. Now, uh, there's a separate census case that's pending before the justices, which is on the court's conference list for Friday, October 16th. So we could hear some news in that one soon. And we had uh, at least one noted dissent from this week's census case, right? That's right. um, There was only one noted dissent. Again, our listeners will know that justices aren't required to note their dissent in uh, these emergency applications. Uh, But Justice Sotomayor wrote uh, a separate dissenting opinion. And she said that, quote, the harms associated with an inaccurate census are avoidable and intolerable. And she said that that weighs in favor of requiring the administration to continue counting while the case works its way through the courts. All right. Should we go to our interview or my interview? Oh, I know. I know. Look, look, you know, people get caught up and got cut off during Supreme Court arguments. I'm in good company. Okay. Anyway, so this interview with Ramsey Kassim, who argued in Tanzan against Tanvir, representing the group of Muslim men trying to sue FBI agents for money. They say that the agents put them on the no-fly list after they refused to spy on their co-religionists. And we also talked with Sean Murata, who represented Ford Motor Company in a big jurisdiction case. So let's check out that interview now. And Kimberly had a little technical difficulty, so sorry, you'll just be hearing me on this one. 
Ramsey Kassim is a law professor at the City University of New York. He's the founding director of the Creating Law Enforcement Accountability and Responsibility Project, or CLEAR, and he represents the respondents in Tanzan against Tanvir, which was argued October 6th. Uh, Mr. Kassim? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the court. Sean Murata is a partner with Hogan Lovells in D.C. with the firm's Appellate and Supreme Court Group. He represents the petitioner Ford Motor Company in the consolidated cases that were argued October 7th. Mr. Murata? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Uh, thank you both for joining Cases and Controversies. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you and with Sean. So... Both of you are in an interesting group, uh, not only having argued before the Supreme Court now, but having argued in these October 2020 session cases. Just to remind listeners, these were cases that were supposed to be argued back at the end of last term. Then the pandemic hits, gets pushed to this term. Between then and now, Justice Ginsburg dies, another hit for the court. Life in general has just gotten weirder all across the board. So against that, sort of dystopian backdrop. How do you go about preparing for a case like this? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, I was fortunate that I hadn't started my preparation by the time the court had pulled the plug, and I had sort of held off on starting my preparation because I think everyone feared at that point that they wouldn't be going forward with argument. But it was unusual because we were one of the last cases granted uh, to make the October 2019 term, which meant that you know, as soon as we got the grant, we were working on amicus coordination, on the opening brief, on you know, talking to the Solicitor General about coming in on our side, and all of that is a very rushed process. It's a very compressed process that happens you know in a mere 40 days, and then to sort of have that all come to a crashing halt, and then having to sort of start back up again after it felt like, even though it was maybe only about four months, it felt like it had been four years since I had ever thought about or even touched this case. So it was odd coming back to a case that I hadn't really been sitting with for a while and picking it up again and learning it again and uh, going forward for oral argument. And so then getting into the day of the actual argument, um, we got a, a bit of an actual glimpse into what both of your setups looked like. And maybe we'll we'll talk about that in a bit, but can you talk about just what it was like the day of the argument for listeners, some of whom were fortunate enough to be able to listen live on C-SPAN? What's your setup like on the other end of that, of the person actually arguing? What are you able to see and hear that us on the other side of it aren't able to? Well, on, on my end, um, you know, a number of uh, last-minute adjustments um, and arrangements had to be made. Uh, because of uh, the Supreme Court clerk's office preference for an analog line for a number of reasons having to do with sound quality, the, the likelihood of disruption with uh, voice over internet protocol lines, which has become the norm um, at my institution, at CUNY Law School, as well as at most uh, law firms. Um, and so having to locate an analog line, and, and we found out that there was only one analog line left at the law school, which was in the head of security's office quite appropriately in case, you know, the internet crashes. So we had to, you know, rig an extension from his office into an adjoining classroom. And we had to literally scramble uh, to BNH uh, to our kind co-counsel's offices at Debevoys and Plimpton in New York to locate an analog polycom because, of course, all the polycom devices we had at the law school were VOIP polycoms. Uh, so all of that was 
you know, a bit of an adventure. My original plan had been to, you know, argue it from home, just as I'd been handling other hearings and arguments and classes and a lot of the client and casework that we do in my clinic. But uh, once the analog line requirement became clear, um, I, I figured out that I had to go to the law school and and made arrangements in that direction. Yeah, I mean, I, I was stuck in the exact same situation, which is, you know, it's it, Hogan Lovells is a multi-million multi, uh, dollar law firm, and yet we had a bunch of folks in the AV department scrambling to find an analog conference line for me. Um, and even then, it turned out that the speakerphone that we had that worked on the analog line was staticky and echoey for the court. So my wife, of all people, located a supplier in Texas that could overnight uh, polycom uh, analog device, which is the things that looks like a lunar lander, and it's stuff that people have right now but aren't used for analog lines. And so the real hero of my argument, as in all of my life, was my wife who uh, located that and got it shipped out to me as I was really just in a panicky meltdown that, you know, I had done all this sort of substantive preparation, but the court wasn't going to be able to hear me because my line was echoey. Um, you know, another aspect of it was just where you put the phone in the room. So for me, it was important that I stand up and have a tabletop podium, but it turned out I had to put the conference line on the edge of the podium to get the best sound quality. So I was sort of shuffling papers around that and it made for a, it made for a different experience. Um, but the other great thing about being by the phone is that you can sort of spread out your papers. Nobody knows if you're looking down at something but just like a real argument, when you walk in with a bunch of binders, you often don't look at any of them during the argument. So I didn't. Um, but I felt better, I guess, having a bunch of binders next to me. And so, Sean, you avoided what was going to possibly be a nightmare tech scenario. But your argument, and while we didn't have anything like last term's uh, Flushgate this term, your argument featured what was, perhaps for lawyers, a scary moment. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Mr. Gupta? Mr. Gupta? Uh, we'll take a brief uh, moment to take a recess to address audio issues uh, at Mr. Gupta's end. Sean, can you walk us through from your view what that was like when, at least for people listening in, it sounded like the argument line just went dead? Yeah, uh, it, because it happened at the beginning of, of my uh, my friend on the other side, Deepak Gupta's argument, it was just silence on the phone. And I was in the room with my uh, senior associate, who was my second chair, Kirti Datla. And even though he's my adversary, we're just looking at each other horrified because obviously it's the worst thing that could have possibly happened to you as an advocate, which is to have your line go out, particularly after you do so many tests with the Supreme Court clerk's office. And I will have to say that they were absolutely phenomenal. Um, poor Michael Schenkman in the counselor to the chief justice's office did, I think, for anybody who had audio problems, innumerable audio tests with good humor and would just get on the line with you and talked it through. And it was really a great tradition of how the court staff takes care of the bar of the court. But that happens. And we're just looking at each other thinking, oh, my God, what's about to happen? You know, do I win by default? I didn't think that would be the case. But, um, you know, I will have to say, though, that Deepak got back on the line. The chief made a joke about it, and he just took off like absolutely nothing happened. I'm not sure I would have had that poise, and it really speaks to his ability as an advocate to just get up and roll with it, when I'm sure he was just as panicky as we were, if not more so. 
one of the things we were wondering is the effect that the passing of RBG had on your actual preparation for the argument. And so I'm wondering if either of you can speak to that. I know that, and Ramsey, tell me if this is something that affects yours too, but I know Sean, particularly for your case, Justice Ginsburg was known for uh, having this role in jurisdiction, which was, broadly speaking, the substance of your case. Yeah, I mean, you know, Justice Ginsburg was not only uh, the voice of civil procedure on the court, but also a titan of personal jurisdiction, which was what my case was all about. She wrote the court's opinions in two of the leading cases that were being brought up in my own case, which is uh, Goodyear versus Brown and Daimler versus Bauman. Um, and I was certainly getting ready to talk to her about those opinions, about some of her separate opinions in the personal jurisdiction cases. And she's also a voice on these topics that when she speaks, the court listens, uh, you know, in live arguments where they're having the back and forth. If it's a civil procedure case and Justice Ginsburg leans forward to ask a question, the other justices lean back and listen because they know they're going to be learning something from that exchange. And it was, you know, whether she was going to vote for my side or not, it was a real loss to not be able to have that conversation with her. And what about you, Ramsey? Did that affect your preparation? Um, I, can't, I mean, I can't say that it really affected preparation as much as, um, you know, was obviously a shock. Um, myself and a number of my colleagues on the legal team uh, at CLEAR, the Center for Constitutional Rights, at Deborah Boys and Plimpton, we all have a great deal of admiration for Justice Ginsburg uh, and her work both on and off the bench um, as an advocate prior to her career as a judge. Um, and so, you know, her, her passing was... Uh, uh, you know, it was accompanied by a sense of loss for all of us, and I was personally looking forward to um, her questions during argument, and I'm, you know, this being my first argument, I was disappointed that um, I didn't have the chance to have that, that direct interaction with someone that I've greatly admired for a long time. And so uh, there's no great transition away from that, but on somewhat of a, a lighter note that we alluded to earlier in talking about getting an actual visual glimpse of your personal setups. One thing that we saw was the great Art Lean did some sketches of the people who were arguing from home. And so, at least from my seat, I saw posted online these images of uh, both of you. Uh, I guess I don't know what you usually wear, but dressed relatively casually, or at least not in, not in suits. And so I'm wondering actually just logistically how it came about that you were able to coordinate with Art to do that. Do you send him a screenshot? I imagine he wasn't, you know, visiting everyone's home like a court artist, Santa Claus, or something like that. So how did that actually go down? Yeah, so Scotus Blog asked us to take pictures uh, of the argument, and so my second chair did that for him, and we just email him the pictures, and that's what he did the sketches based on. Well, it winds up being a, a cool memento because then everyone has everyone has the same type of of picture from this session. So it's yet another thing that kind of marks this strange occasion in this strange setting anyway for this this milestone again it was both of your first arguments but you know you really couldn't tell so it would be sufficient for your purposes to if we wrote an opinion simply saying we're, we're not relying on any presumptions of any kind anywhere we're looking at the text the text refers us to the law of remedies the law of remedies today is a distinct area of transubstantive law um it's unhinged from any particular form or cause of action the way it used to be, and it allows uh, the court's discretion to form sufficient relief to make a person whole. 
Uh, Justice Gorsuch, as long as that opinion concludes with and we affirm, absolutely. <laughs> Naturally. I, I would assume no less. Thank you, counsel. I'm, I'm finished. She actually managed to get a laugh out of him. How was that from your view? Well, I, I was uh, very grateful for, uh, you know, the exchange that I was able to have with Justice Gorsuch and all the other justices and the extent, uh, obviously, of their engagement with the subject matter. And, I, and, I, and the argument, you know, felt comfortable, felt conversational. Um, I, I sensed from the beginning that there was, you know, engagement from both sides. I mean, the questions were tough and critical, both of myself and um, of uh, Mr. Needler for the Solicitor General's office. Uh, but uh, I'm grateful to the justices for, you know, having created an environment where even though we are operating remotely in these unusual circumstances, um, there was enough um, comfort to, to be able to, to have that kind of human exchange. And since you brought up uh, Needler, I actually wanted to ask you about this too, because we were mentioning this in setting up the case on our sneak peek episode, how Ramsey is your first argument, and it's Edwin Needler's, I think, like 5,000th or 6,000th Supreme Court argument. We'll have to fact check that. And I mean, you know, no one will say that they prepare differently for an argument based on who they're arguing against. But I mean, that and that adds another level of gravity to the whole event, does it not? Um, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I mean, anyone has to respect uh, the depth of experience that someone like uh, Mr. Needler uh, brings into the courtroom. I, I think he's uh, the record holder at this point for the number of oral arguments before the Supreme Court. I, uh, of course, you know, his names were on the brief for the, uh, on the briefs for the Solicitor General's office. Uh, but I was not aware that he was going to be the person arguing um, for the petitioners until literally the day before argument. Um, and so at that point, uh, you know, I looked him up just to sort of confirm <laughs> what I thought I remembered about him. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'll confess that it was, uh, it was quite intimidating just sort of confirming my recollection that he is probably the single most experienced advocate before the Supreme Court. Um, but, you know, in the end, uh, Everybody prepares in depth. I've had the benefit of, you know, preparing twice uh, for this argument, for better or worse. Um, and, you know, the bulk of your engagement is, is going to be with the justices and with the subject matter. And so on, on, on one level, it doesn't matter, even though initially there was a sense of, you know, trepidation and intimidation at, you know, going in for my first argument against someone who uh, probably argued his first case before the Supreme Court uh, before I was born. <laughs> Probably right. And so just in terms of the setup of the way these arguments went, obviously it was each of your first arguments, but you've listened to numerous arguments, at least I'm sure each. And so another advent of this pandemic argument is that they're doing this seriatim mode, the justices questioning in order. Wondering whether any of you have an opinion just on whether that is an effective, useful, ineffective mode of being able to get your arguments across, be a successful advocate, whether you have any thoughts on that going forward. I know some people are critical of the process, some like it. I imagine when the case was first granted, neither of you thought you would be speaking with Justice Thomas. So what do you guys think about that? I think it is the best way to do it, given the circumstances, certainly, um, because any, particularly when you're all on the phone and you don't even have a Zoom where you can try to make eye contact with people, um, the traffic jam that would occur 
when three people try to jump in and ask a question at the same time would be awful. I mean, even when you're in the courtroom, sometimes the chief has to play traffic cop and sort out who's going to ask the question. Um, so you couldn't do that just on the phone where no one knows if somebody's about to jump in. Um, but what you lose is two things. First, you lose the sort of natural back and forth of <clears throat> questions and answers. And second, because almost everybody feels compelled to ask questions, you don't know whether the questions you're getting are reflecting the, the true and deepest concerns, or if it's somebody feels like, well, we're up, so it's time to ask my question. Because, you know, when people ask questions at oral argument, typically that's representing something they want to throw in and that you can try to assuage them. Um, whereas when everyone asks questions, you don't have a good sense of who's on your side, who's not on your side, and, and where you should be directing your attention. But one thing as an advocate is that I, one of the things I find hardest in a normal, normal oral, oral argument is transitioning in and out of questions. In other words, answering the question, then pivoting out to an affirmative point. On the phone with this format, it's not as big of a problem because you never pivot out. It's almost always just questions. So in some ways, it makes it easier as the advocate, um, despite some of the pitfalls of it. What do you think, Ramsey? I agree with Sean uh, that that this is uh, probably the best solution to the circumstances in which we all find ourselves, um, you know, with the absence of, of body language and other physical and facial cues that uh, you'd have if you're in the same space uh, with the adjudicators or the justices in this instance. Um, this is probably the best way to organize the conversation. and you know, to the extent there's a silver lining to that. I mean, I think we would have all preferred to be in the same physical space, to have that, the benefit of that more um, immediate interaction where, where we'd be able to read uh, the justice's cues better. Uh, but to the extent there is a silver lining to this format is that it imposes a level of order and predictability on um, what can be chaotic oftentimes in, in oral argument, uh, particularly appellate argument. Just for you know, all of us on the outside here, do either, either of you have any uh, fun facts or anecdotes from the the argument that, that weren't apparent that might be interesting to share? Um, I think it was really awesome to get to argue in front of the Supreme Court wearing a, a pullover shirt and pants. Um, but <clears throat> one of the things I actually recommend to advocates is that you, just as you moot your arguments, the substance of your arguments, you should also sort of moot your logistics, which means that you should practice in the room that you hope to do the argument in with the audio equipment you hope to do the argument in because you don't want to learn at the last minute that the speakerphone's going to have to be someplace different and you can't put your papers there. But I also suggest mooting your outfit because I have some colleagues who say that when they have remote oral argument that they have to wear a suit to feel empowered and to feel like they're a lawyer. I tried that for a moot. I didn't feel empowered. I felt like a guy in a suit yelling at a speakerphone. So instead I said to myself, you know what, if I'm not going to get to be in the historic courtroom looking at the justices, you know, from two feet away, because the podium's real close, I thought might as well just go in the other direction and say that I get the unique experience of just talking to a speakerphone about personal jurisdiction. And that in some ways almost makes it more relaxed, more conversational, at least on my end. Um, and yeah, you know, as you mentioned, art, one of the cool things about arts, 
uh, drawings is that, you know, in the courtroom, he has the same setup. The guy's at the podium and the justices are on the bench and that's what he draws. For this, he's drawing everybody's different setup from people who are, you know, in formal conference rooms with the seal of the state behind them to a Hogan Lovell's conference room to Ramsey. I know you were sitting at a desk in a hoodie. And I think that's just a it's kind of a cool momentum from the pandemic uh, environment where you get to sort of see everybody and what they think is their most natural environment and seeing how it differs for excellent advocates all around. Um, oh, I definitely mooted logistics and outfits, uh, <laughs> e- even down to meals. Uh, you know, what I would, what, what I ate on the day of argument is exactly what I ate on sort of the days of my two um, major moots and the lead up to argument this time around. Um, and I think it's extremely important to do that because inevitably there'll be surprises. And so I think someone listening to this and Ramsey, I don't, if you don't want to divulge an edge that you had so that Ed Needler can gain an advantage on you next time, what did you wind up eating for the argument? This is the type (laughs) of thing that, you know, the people want to know. I needed something simple that would not, uh, make me lethargic. And after uh, extensive experimentation with different sorts of breakfast, and I settled on like basic unsweetened oatmeal, uh, you know, something that would leave me feeling sated, but not uh, heavy or, uh, or, uh, or weighed down. And, you know, people might be surprised that, that there's actually a lot of literature out there about what Supreme Court oral advocates eat. Uh, I, I think, you know, I was reading an article about how Don, Don Verrilli, um President Obama's Solicitor General uh, for most of his administration um, has a has a tradition or a ritual or a habit of, uh, you know, eating salmon uh, in his hotel room without anything else, uh, just a, like a healthy chunk of salmon the night before argument and won't eat breakfast on the morning of argument. Um, and his logic for that is that it stimulates brain function. My logic is just I don't want to fall asleep. Now um, on to our next interview. So as we mentioned at the top, the Senate completed its four-day confirmation hearings for Amy Coney Barrett. The hearing to confirm Judge Amy Barrett to the Supreme Court will now begin. To tell us a little bit about what happened, we're joined by Bloomberg Law reporter Madison Alder. Thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having me, guys. So we are recording this on Thursday, October 15th, the final day of confirmation hearings for Amy Coney Barrett. And you've been watching the proceedings pretty closely. Uh, Is there anything in particular that stuck out to you? Well, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, you know, was given a lot of questions about uh, issues that were hot button topics like the Affordable Care Act and uh, abortion. And, and on a lot of those issues, you know, she said that she wasn't able to answer because those kinds of cases might come before her as a justice. Um, one issue that she did talk about pretty at length uh, was the issue of severability, though, because it's coming up in, in the ACA case. And, you know, she multiple times gave different definite gave the, the same definition of, of severability to lawmakers, which is that, you know, the the part of law could be separated from um, the entire thing and, and that the law could stand. Um, so that seemed to be a topic that was a pretty popular and pretty common set of questions for, for Democrats. And uh, then we also saw um, you know, a lot of questions about recusal. Um, those elicited fewer answers, um, uh, but she said that she would go through the process of, of recusing and, and talking to her, her, you know, fellow 
justices about it and then coming to that conclusion as cases came up. The, you know, the issue of recusals came up uh, in a couple of contexts, but um, one notably um, because President Trump has said that one of the reasons why we need to fill Justice Ginsburg's seat is because there might uh, be an election case that goes to the Supreme Court. So Maddie, you talked a little bit about, you know, what Democrats, the kinds of questions they were asking her. Um, but as Senator Booker put it, the goose is cooked pretty much when it comes to her confirmation. So what was their strategy uh, in this hearing? So Democrats really presented the united front from the beginning of that first day of, of trying to bring this back to issues that that really impact the election. And the issue that was most common was health care. Uh, they they made reference to the pandemic a lot. They made reference to the fact that the they think the Affordable Care Act is on the line and talked about how their constituents use the ACA and, and use the Affordable Care Act to get health care. So they made it really personal. And, um, you know, that was a common theme throughout throughout the hearings. Um, but still, you know, some progressive groups have taken issue with how um, Senator Dianne Feinstein, the, the ranking Democrat on the committee, uh, handled herself. Um, you know, she she complimented Amy Coney Barrett on one of her definitions of severability, and that that elicited some reactions from from progressives. And then at the end, of course, she she hugged Chairman Lindsey Graham and said that this was a you know great hearing. And so it, that was another part of this that you know some Democrats potentially brought heat the way that progressives wanted to see. Um, But in other ways, progressives are saying they potentially fell flat. So what about on the Republican side? What was their playbook? The Republicans really wanted to highlight Amy Coney Barrett's record. So a lot of their questions were um, about, you know, her, her background. A lot of the questions were about areas where, you know, she's, she's written a lot on and, and, um, a lot of the questions, I think, were kind of helping her along. Um, we tend to see that in these hearings. And then, you know, sometimes their questions were, were talking about sports and the Astros. So <laughs> that, that's also something that we'll see in these hearings sometimes, trying to lighten the mood, I guess, a little bit. And then, so, you know, I know that these confirmation hearings are to get to know the nominee, to get to know their philosophy, to kind of get a sense, perhaps, of what kind of justice they'll be. Besides the fact that at one point she used to speak French and that she plays the piano, um, did we learn a lot about Barrett? I would say that we didn't learn a lot about Barrett that wasn't already known. Um, you know, that's and that's pretty common, I think, with a lot of these hearings. Obviously, the, the Kavanaugh confirmation process was a totally different animal. Um, but we really didn't learn a lot that wasn't already reported by, by news outlets or, or wasn't already known at the time of her last confirmation hearing, which was just three years ago. Um, so really, the only things that we were talking about that were new were things that have happened in, in the last three years. Uh, we did also learn that she doesn't hate warm puppies. Do you hate little warm puppies? <laughs> I do not hate little warm puppies. Okay. I just want to get all that clear. So that was, I didn't know that personally. So what's next uh, for the nominee? What's going to be the next step that the Senate takes? So Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham set up the confirmation vote for October 22nd. Um, the committee will vote on on the nominee. 
Uh, and, and if she is favorably reported out of the committee, she'll go to the Senate floor where Republicans have already indicated they, they have the votes. They indicated that before the hearing started, actually. Um, so it's, it's expected that she will be confirmed if her nominee goes to the floor, um, likely a week before the, the election. Right. So um, just so that our listeners are clear on the numbers, it seems like they have to get four Republican senators to kind of defy their party and in order for her not to be confirmed. We already have two that said they don't think it's appropriate to hear to have these hearings right now. No, not really sure how they're going to vote. Uh, do you see any other two senators that are going to step into this mix? Obviously, it's hard to know, but I, I really don't. Um, I don't think the hearings made any kind of a difference uh, in in this process. Uh, beforehand, senators were already saying, you know, what their thoughts were on this, but um, I don't think that the hearings made any kind of difference. So if we didn't hear them before, I don't know if we're going to hear anybody else saying that they wouldn't vote for her now. Uh, Jordan, you said you wanted to make fun of Ben Sass. <laughs> um, not more than he did himself. Uh... <laughs> I think one of my favorite parts of the hearing was his civics lesson that he gave, uh, which was notable for it being incorrect. The antidote to judicial activism is originalism. Originalism, also known as textualism, is basically the old idea from eighth grade civics that judges don't get to make laws. And so um, maybe not an eighth grader, but at least someone the passing familiarity with law in the last 30 years or so knows that those two things are actually different. And I checked actually right before we recorded this, he actually has those comments still posted on his website and even prominently linking to the video. So I don't know if the word got back to him yet in these, uh, you know, partisan times with, you know, everyone's in their different news silos. So, and then also another one of Sass's questions to her was asking, can you name the five things protected by the First Amendment? Um, what are the five freedoms of the First Amendment? Speech, religion, press, assembly, speech, press, religion, assembly, I don't know. What am I missing? Re- redress or protest. Okay. I um, saw I saw Twitter making some hay out of the fact that the one that she left off was peaceful protesting. But, you know, it was a long day. I'm sure she knows the five things that are protected. But we did, we did see a few gaffes. Um, all right, Maddie, anything else uh, about the confirmation hearings that we didn't already talk about that you think that people um, should be thinking about or kind of next steps going forward? Um, I think the the confirmation hearings, you know, they didn't really add much that we didn't already know. So, uh, you know, going forward, it's it's probably going to go the same way we thought it would a few weeks ago. That'll do it for this episode. Make sure to tune in next week for our deep dive looking ahead to the November session. Until then, thanks for listening. Taxes and accounting are complicated, but finding a good tax podcast shouldn't be. I'm Siri Belusu, and I'm Amanda Icone. Listen to Talking Tax, the podcast that breaks down all of these issues on a weekly basis. Every Thursday, Talking Tax will explain the latest issues for you, from what Congress is working on, to legal rulings, to the global digital tax debate. Download and subscribe to Talking Tax wherever you get your podcasts.